So the holiday season is just weeks away and the new COVID-19 variant, Omicron, is feeling a lot like the Grinch that could steal Christmas. Already the called the Grinch variant, has led to new travel restrictions and closed borders in some countries. And no one even knows how dangerous it is yet or if the current vaccines are effective against it. The fear might be racing ahead of the facts, but the governments are merely doing what they learned in the last 20 months of the pandemic. They're trying to act quickly. So what's actually happened? Well, all air travelers coming into Canada from abroad, except the U.S., should expect to be tested at an airport on arrival. Those who are vaccinated will have to isolate at home until they get a negative result. Foreign nationals uh, who are from or recently traveled to 10 African countries are now all banned, and all returning Canadians or permanent residents coming from those countries will be subjected to stricter measures. Here's the big question. Could more travel restrictions be on the way, and should Canadians alter their travel plans? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Transport Minister, Omar Al-Gabra. Good to see you, Minister. Obviously, this is the travel season. Uh, in the last number of days, Canadians have been worried that the holidays are going to be blown up by this whole thing. What is the message to them now? Should Canadians avoid traveling? Uh, hi, Evan. Um, uh, it's good to see you and good to be back on the show with you. Um, look, I realize uh, there is a lot of anxiety uh, uh, there's the holiday season, as you mentioned, coming up, and people uh, are considering what to do, whether to travel or not. And you know, I'd like to be able to give you, uh, uh, you know, a confident, confident, 100% clear answer about what they should do. My my advice to Canadians is that things are fluid. The the pandemic is not over, uh, and and they should really follow public health advice. They should get vaccinated. They should uh, uh, they should check up on, on travel advisories, and they should check out the countries that they're considering or the destinations that right. they're considering visit. It, right now, the situation is very fluid, and I want Canadians to be safe but, wherever they are. Okay, but, but I, I said earlier, are, 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 is fear racing ahead of the facts? We don't know if Omicron is more dangerous than the Delta variant that dominates now. We don't know if our vaccines are more or less effective. Um, and yet we've taken strict measures. We've banned travel to countries. We have essentially given warnings to people who are elderly. Please don't travel. We've started this whole panic about this, but we don't have the facts. When are the facts going to catch up to what's happening here? Like, why are we doing all this if we don't have the facts? Evan, I'd, I'd like to characterize this as being prudent and not panic. This is not the time for panic. It's a time of concern. And, and what we've learned over the last year and a half is that it's better to be cautious, it's better to err on the side of, of being careful than, uh, than to wait. So you're right, there are still a lot of unknown answers, and it's better to be safe than sorry, and that's what we're doing right now. We're being prudent, we're being cautious, and I, we're calling on all Canadians to do the same. And I know this, by the way, will be good not only for our health, but for our economy. Because if we're not cautious now, it would be too late right. after the fact. But the health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, said Friday that airport arrival tests are going to be, quote, progressively implemented. Now, again, people are, this is going to make travel a nightmare. When will all airports be doing these tests and can they handle the volume? So, uh, look, we're, uh, I know this is going to add a level of inconvenience, and I don't take any joy in, in adding extra 
measures. But these measures, as I stated, are needed. And we're working with airports. The implementation has started already. Um, and, and passengers, we're going to do our best to ensure that we're doing it efficiently in working with a PHAC, Public Health Agency of Canada, with CBSA, with airports. We're going to do as much as we can to be as efficient and effective as possible. We're going to try our best not to cause additional delay. But I do want to ask Canadians to be patient, to expect right. some delays, because these are additional measures that are meant How to long? protect them and but, to protect their loved ones. Okay, but when you say some, some delays, you know, we've all traveled, and we, when we hear some delays, you know what we think. Are you talking about, you know, people say arrive two hours before your flight, three hours before? Are there going to be, when you land, is it going to take four hours to cross the border? What, what kind of delays are we talking about? Well, the delays is mostly for arrivals, uh, if there are any, uh, and and we're going to do our best to manage your flow. So what could, we could consider, by the way, is we could provide take-home uh, tests sometimes, depending on the volumes. So that those are the options that we're looking. As of right now, tests are being done at the airport. As we are ramping up right. uh, at the numbers of tests, we may consider options to, to facilitate better flow. You know, it's so complicated. Like, it is wildly complicated. Why, why not do what the U.S. did? And, and, and they just said, look, anyone who's coming in, get a negative COVID test within 24 hours, show it on, on arrival, and, and Bob's your uncle. It's done. Like, why this take-home test or not take-home test, isolate, not isolate, call, get someone. Like, boy, it seems like a lot of management. Uh, first of all, Evan, um, you know, this is not the first time that we have a different uh, 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 rules at our border than the United States. And in fact, we we believe we have this comprehensive layers of protection. So we also, just like the U.S., we also have a pre-departure test. We have a PCR pre-departure test. The U.S., by the way, allows for antigen or PCR. So we require a PCR test prior to getting to the border. Then uh, uh, we require vaccination at the border. Then we have a test at the border. So I know there are layers of protections, but these are done prudently to protect the health and safety of Canadians. We don't want to go back to lockdowns, Evan. Nobody wants to go back to lockdowns. And until we learn more about this Omicron variant, I think it's prudent to do so. And we have been smart in tailoring there because there's no one perfect method. But it needs to be tailored, customized with layers of protection. In all of this, we've now had banned 10 different countries, by the way, all in Africa, all these countries, and yet COVID exists in the Netherlands, they didn't get a travel ban. It exists in the UK, they didn't get a travel ban. It exists in Japan, they didn't get a travel ban. And then the US is, is exempt from all these testing rules, and you just wonder if travelers just say, look, this is a nightmare situation. I'll just reroute my flight from landing in Canada. I'll land in Buffalo. I'll land in Detroit. And I'll just zip across the border. I just, is there a sense that you've tried to lock the front door and pretend the house is safe, but you've just opened the back door and people can just run in? Evan, we're implementing smart, tailored policies based on the information and science. So, the reason why we have different levels of layers of protection depends on the, and the country of origin or the person where the person is coming from. There are certain countries that are reported to have community transmission of this variant. Other countries have reported 
variants, but not significant community uh, transmission. And the United States, as of right now, and we have, by the way, a better understanding of the United States public health measures. We have a, an ongoing communication with them regularly because of our integrated economies and, 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 and countries. But we have no so protection for them, like you, you and I both know. People can, but it's not the U.S., Travis. A lot of people that can come from the U.S. and drive across the border. I mean, we, we've exempted the U.S. All these measures are for air travel. Then they can land in the U.S. and drive across the border. I, I, there is a big loophole there. So, Evan, please do not uh, say that when it's, uh, you know, like, because it's not true. Travelers from the United States. First, they're required to get a PCR test before arriving at the border, whether it's land or airport. Second, uh, they need to be vaccinated. Third, they are going to be part of a random mandatory testing. Almost 20% of travelers from the U.S., either at the land or by airport, could be subjected to PCR tests at the border. Second, if anybody is traveling indirectly through the United States, they have to declare where, they, where they've been. And if they've been to any of those 10 countries, they are going to be subjected to quarantine and testing. Omar Al-Gabra, Minister of Transport, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks, Evan. Well, this says it all. Billionaire financer John Paulson once said, if you don't own a home, buy one. And if you own a home, buy another one. And if you own two homes, buy a third buy a third? Oh yeah, right. Billionaires giving advice on housing is like fish giving advice on flying. It doesn't apply to most people. In Canada, for most people, just buying a single home, let alone three homes, is almost impossible. A new report from Remax shows prices are projected to increase by an average of 9.2% across Canada next year. And right now, the average cost of a home is nearly $717,000. Now, the Conservatives argue that the rising inflation rate and the soaring housing costs are all the result of liberal stimulus spending. The liberals say no, the conservatives are simply ready to abandon helping Canadians keep up. Check out this sample of the debate. We now have the biggest housing bubble in the world outside of New Zealand, and Toronto and Vancouver are the fifth and second most expensive housing markets in the world, ahead of Manhattan, San Francisco, London, and others. Wow. So if this Prime Minister is not to blame, then exactly what is causing this housing price inflation? One has to at least recognize that the Conservatives are consistent in their approach and that they want to do less whenever they're confronted with a problem. Canadians are challenged with uh, a housing crisis right now, and we are moving forward with programs to help first-time homebuyers to invest money for municipalities so that they can cut red tape and build more supply. So politics aside, what's really to blame for the hot housing market? Is Canada at risk of a housing correction? Is this a bubble? Let's find out. Joining me now is Evan Sedell. From January of 2014 to April of 2021, just a few months ago, he was the CEO of the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. They have a simple mandate to make housing affordable for everyone in Canada. How's that going? Mr. Sedell is now the CEO of the Alberta Investment Management Corporation. They only oversee $118 billion of investment. So welcome to the program. Uh, this is the hottest debate in politics, as you know, and, and I think for everyone, Evan Sedell. Conservatives blame the Liberals for the high cost of housing, their stimulus spending. The Liberals say high prices are a result of global pandemic. In your view, what is driving the, the, the rise in house prices? It's supply and demand. It's just that simple. Demand is increasing. It increased during COVID and supply is constrained. And as when you have supply constraint uh, and supply constraint and demand increasing, prices go up. It's that simple. 
Okay, but but is that demand? Is it because of the low interest rates that's driving it? Sure. Um, I mean, there must be a, a lot of factors because in the last 20 years, the average house price has gone up 375 percent. Toronto yeah. and Vancouver, close to 450 percent. So that's over every government. So so what's been driving it for two decades? Yeah, it's it's not a political issue, Evan. It is a question. It is for sure low rates. It's also just increasing economic growth. And then on top of that, the governments, the government, there are government stimulus packages around housing that contribute to demand. On the other side, the government simply cannot contribute enough money in the size of this market to create the supply that's needed. Okay, the Liberals say, no, sorry, we have a plan to deal with high home prices. We are, we're going to increase supply. We're going to be building affordable homes through the $4 billion housing accelerator fund, the first-time homebuyers incentive. Are those effective? Are those enough? They are at the margin. And let's face it, that's all government can really do on the supply side. It's too much for a government to handle. We're talking trillions of dollars in housing activity, Evan. It's, it's, it's not a supply. It is a supply problem, but it's not a supply problem the government can deal with on its own. It needs private sector support. Okay. Um, there, you know, we got a um, fiscal update on December 14th. Uh, the Conservatives are saying, reining in the spending because the spending is driving house prices. What would your response be? I'd say it's not about the spending on house prices. It's actually about the, much more the demand and the slow supply response. So that, again, is market factors, including slow approvals. And there's a lack of coordination among municipal, provincial, and federal governments. And it's hard for people to build houses. That's one problem. The other problem is low rates make housing even more attractive. Mortgage insurance makes it further attractive. And the fact that we don't tax capital gains on houses, I know this is a lousy political issue, also contributes to demand. All those things make prices... Okay, uh, by the way, you just, not a lousy political issue, you probably said something that made people's hair fall out, which is yep. capital gains on your first home, your, your residence. For most people, some governments even musing about taxing their... It's uh, political suicide. It's political suicide, but it also would take people's retirement and torch it. Is that actually a consideration? No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be retroactive. It would take place from now forward. The, one of the things that's really driving people apart in terms of inequality in our country is the amount of money people are making off houses who own them versus the amount of money people aren't making on, on their homes that rent them. It's a, it's a real problem, Evan. And, the re and why don't we tax gains on houses, but we do tax gains on other investments? It's a, it's a serious, non-progressive situation in our tax code. Okay, are, are, like you've been in the game on this. Are, are politicians actually even thinking about that? No, no, because it's political suicide. Because it gets into a silly debate about, you're not going to take my money from me. Well, there are some people who don't have that money, and this is a real problem in this country, and it's getting worse. Wow, okay. That, okay, so you're saying capital gains on houses would be one, as you say, maybe political suicide, but you it have been... Go ahead. It could be about the threshold, right? You could, you could be allowed to make a certain amount of money tax-free and tax above that. There are lots of options, but politicians just aren't allowed to have this conversation because the opposition, and it's any color, will skewer them for it. And so we don't have the debate we have to have. Okay, well, what is the debate we need to have? How do we structure a progressive capital gains tax on principal residences? I think that's a legitimate conversation. Wow. You can make dollars a year, let's say, on that, but nothing more, and we'll tax above them. These are all options that people could explore. Okay, you talk about low interest rates. That, again, that's monetary policy, that's the bank. And I know this is politicized. Uh, you do have Pierre Polyever saying things like flooding the, flooding the market with, by printing money is causing uh, um, inflation rates. Look, interest rates are going to go up. We know that. The governor of the bank was on this program a couple weeks ago saying, not a lot, but they're going to start incrementally climbing. Uh, yeah. What impact will that have? 
that will slow down demand for housing. It will, because it is a very rate sensitive, uh, rate sensitive consumable, rate sensitive investable. It's highly correlated to interest rates, and that will slow things down when rates go up. That's true. You know, it's important to not blame the government of the Bank of Canada for housing results. That's a fiscal choice. He has one lever in its interest rates. How that's toggled within people's choices is a, is a question for, for fiscal policy, not monetary policy. But if interest rates go up and people have taken on huge mortgages, are we at yep. risk of a housing bubble bursting? No, we're not, because the overwhelming majority of Canadians have fixed rate mortgages. And those who have shorter term mortgages actually have to uh, sustain interest rates as if they were fixed. And on top of that, we have something, the very controversial stress test in Canada, which adds a premium on top of the current mortgages in the underwriting. So said differently, there's a cushion already in, in, this, uh, in the housing market for the possibility that prices may go up. Pierre Polyever, the finance critic for the Conservatives, Evan Sedell, says that we are in the world's second largest housing bubble. He quotes it all the time, we're just after New Zealand, yeah. that we are in a housing bubble. Is Canada in a housing bubble? I don't think we're in a bubble. I really don't think we're in a bubble. I don't think, I think that, the, that there are real underlying factors of demand, including economic growth, immigration, COVID shifts in preferences, and we're not building housing fast enough. Prices go up in that situation. But I, I guess the question is why? Again, I'm just, I wanna, I'm trying to get precise here. Yeah. Conservatives say under Stephen Harper, and I know you were appointed under Stephen Harper, the average yeah. house price was $450,000. Now the average house price under Justin Trudeau is $720,000. They say, see, this is what's happened because of your spending. H how would you parse that? I would say that's not true. The mortgage insurance and tax-free and tax -free capital gains on housing existed under the Conservatives and the Liberals. It's not a political partisan issue. It's a core construct of our housing market, and, it, and, it, and it's going to require some political courage to get underneath it. But I, I reject the fact that it's one fault versus the other. Okay. Uh, you're, you're sitting down with Christian Freeland. She's about to deliver her... Um fiscal update December 14th, she says, hey, look, I'm getting every day they're questioning me about inflation and housing inflation. You know this market better than anybody in the country, Evan Sedell. What, do what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? What I would do is I would look at the construct of mortgage insurance. I mean, frankly, I'd like to look at the capital gains on principal residences, but I think that's a step too far, to be fair to the Minister of Finance and other opposition politicians. But I would look at the mortgage insurance program and how stimulative it is. I'd increase the minimum down payment from 5 to 10% for sure. Uh, and I might even bracket it from, it's currently 5 to 20% down payment, go from 10 to 25 cover more of the waterfront, require more equity. I actually think that would be a smart move. Evan Sedell, some straight talk. I like it. Uh, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, Evan. Well, who's pulling Santa's sleigh this year? Dasher, Dancer, Blitzen, and Booster? Yep. Boosters are coming just in time for the holidays. They are recommended, though, by NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, not by old St. Nick. But the committee is strongly advising booster doses for all adults age 50 and up and saying adults age 18 to 49 may be offered a booster. For both age groups, the booster should only be given six months after completing their first series of vaccines. Will these booster shots end up becoming mandatory? And what do we know so far about the Omicron variant? Are vaccines effective? Well, let's find out. We're joined now by the Deputy Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Howard New. Uh, okay, Doc, uh, outside of my dad bad my bad dad jokes, uh, let's start with those boosters. Um, new recommendations. Are they because of fear of Omicron or are there other factors considered for the boosters? 
Oh, no, like it certainly I think it seems uh, coincidental because of the Omicron variant, but uh, certainly our, our National Advisory Committee on Immunization has been looking at this issue for quite some time. Uh, we've seen in other countries that, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that there's been waning immunity at a population level, for example, in Israel and the United States. Uh, and so our committee has been very uh, sort of alive to the issue and been looking at the data both here in Canada and abroad. And I think... Uh, uh, with the recommendation today, I think it's it's good timing. Uh, they realize that uh, as we head into our winter season and maybe uh, more gatherings indoors uh, and so on, it's it's really a good time to uh, uh, put forward this recommendation. Just talk about, I think when you say waning immunity, that's going to trigger a lot of red flags for people. What does that mean? When do they start to wane and, and at what level? Like when are they become, when you say waning, are they becoming kind of useless eventually? No, I wouldn't say useless. I, I think we're, we're quite lucky in Canada. And just to put in, into perspective uh, what we're seeing in other countries like the U.S. and Israel, where you're seeing more what we call breakthrough infections among people who are fully vaccinated and uh, even maybe uh, some more uh, serious uh, consequences like hospitalizations. Uh, it's important to note that those countries, uh, uh, by and large, went with what we call the manufacturer's recommendation in terms of a dosing interval of three weeks. And here in Canada, we went uh, with a longer dosing interval. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you can see uh, with our, our uh, vaccine effectiveness studies, we've actually shown that in Canada overall, the immunity that uh, the general population has had with this uh, increased dose interval is actually longer lasting and even stronger uh, because of what we've done. And so we're, we're sort of in, a, in some ways ahead, but we all recognize that, uh, yes, there's also signs uh, in Canada that uh, we're starting to have waning immunity. And what that means is that, you know, uh, more and more people who are fully vaccinated are coming down with infection. But the good news still is, is that uh, mm. even though those people are, are coming down with infection, it's still very, very good protection against severe illness and hospitalization. So that's the good news. But the reason I just, to finish off, the reason we're going uh, with the booster is that uh, we don't want to wait too long because, you know, if you keep waiting to have even more data showing, oh, look at this, uh, more hospitalizations and so on, then in some ways it's a bit late because uh, if you were to start a vaccine program, it takes, as we know, two weeks for someone who's vaccinated to fully get uh, sort of that boost, uh, you know, from that additional dose. And so we don't want to wait that long and uh, start, to, in a sense, in a preemptive way. So that's the reason for the recommendation. Okay, so preemptive. Just on that, is there real science to back up the fact that Canada's decision, there was two decisions. One, to, to, to have longer intervals than the drug companies actually originally recommended uh, between 8 to 12 weeks that actually has helped boost the efficacy and long-lasting uh, effects of the vaccines. And two, a lot of people have those mixes and matches, you know, one Pfizer, one Moderna, one AstraZeneca. Have those strategies actually proven to be better? Yes, I would say uh, the answer to both questions is yes. You know, certainly there's uh, quite a number of studies coming out from Canada that showed that uh, both our mixed dose schedule and our longer dose interval between the first and second dose uh, uh, have served us in good stead in terms of a, a longer lasting immunity uh, uh, and also a, a more robust immune response. But uh, as uh, uh, you know, NASI has been looking at the data and there's been a lot of studies uh, also around the world looking at the, you know, the impact of booster doses. And what we've seen is that you know, by giving a booster dose, and uh, we can talk about the interval as well, uh, after the uh, sort of the completion of the primary series, that it actually is very good in terms of uh, any sort of uh, boosting it, to be quite honest, the immune response in terms of, you know, antibodies and so on. And so uh, for all those reasons, I think it's important.
Okay, well, we're waiting six months uh, after your primary shots to get the boosters, but boosters are recommended for adults 50 and up and some of those other subcategories, but not anyone 18 and up. Why not? Why not? If you want to preemptively get ahead, why not just give everyone a booster shot? Well, if you look at the NACI recommendations, it does have that. It's more of a discretionary recommendation. And so definitely if you're over 50, the, the strong recommendation to the provinces and territories. And just to let you know that it's not, uh, you know, in a vacuum. Uh, we've had very good discussions with our counterparts in the provinces and territories, the public health officials. Everyone's very uh, comfortable. Uh, I think there's even a joint statement that uh, should be coming out shortly, if not already uh, sort of, you know, going out to publicly that everyone's on board. And so certainly the priority of, in terms of 50-year-olds uh, and, and others uh, sort of with a high-risk condition should be getting uh, the booster dose first, certainly six months or, or later after the you know, completion of their the primary series. But depending on context, depending on the, you know, other situational aspects, uh, uh, the provinces are certainly uh, also, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, looking at potentially offering it to, to younger age groups. So certainly that recommendation may be offered to uh, 18 and over is there. And then provinces and territories can uh, look at their vaccine programs, uh, logistical issues, and all other considerations uh, before rolling out their respective programs. As you know, countries around the world are shutting borders or boosting their testing. We're getting into the holiday season. What is the yeah. advice to Canadians? Should they travel? Is it okay to have holiday gatherings? Uh, let me put it this way. I can only speak for myself. At the end of the day, it is a matter of what I call a a personal risk assessment and also risk tolerance. So, you know, if I was, let's say, an individual with, let's say, maybe a, uh, older with maybe underlying medical conditions, I would think twice, you know. Uh, the pandemic's still raging around the world. There's lots of, uh, you know, uh, COVID-19 many places in the world and obviously with the Omicron variant. So I think you need to be very uh, thoughtful in terms of is the travel really necessary if you want to go outside of Canada and what kind of measures can you take, you know, uh, what kind of activities would you be uh, undertaking uh, in your destination uh, abroad, you know, what's the culture uh, of, of sort of public health measures, you know, in terms of use of face masks, where you're going, uh, what's the vaccine coverage, lots of things to consider. Uh, so, you know, I can't make that decision for, for everyone, but those are the kinds of uh, things you need to consider. And then for gatherings, uh, well, all I can say is the same kind of thing. I would say that uh, for myself, uh, I would say that, you know, if I'm looking at family gatherings uh, for the holidays, uh, number one, I would certainly want to ensure that everyone in sort of uh, my setting indoors uh, is uh, fully vaccinated. So that's number one. Number two, uh, looking at what's happening maybe with possible breakthrough infections and, and so on. It might be a good conversation to have with everyone uh, in terms of uh, could or should everyone uh, maybe still with a certain comfort level be wearing face masks indoors if we're getting together, even if fully vaccinated. And third, and very importantly, which is maybe new compared to last year, is that as much as possible, improve the ventilation in your in your household setting. And I know it's the winter, but, you know, something as simple as opening the window, uh, maybe for, you know, a certain period of time, uh, every hour to help circulate the air could also be another additional measure. All right, lots to process there. Dr. Howard, you great <laughs> to have you in the program, as always. Thank you, sir. Okay, you're very welcome. Cost of living, houses, groceries, the most urgent political debate right now is clear. Inflation, inflation, inflation. But the political question remains, is inflation being fueled by the spending of the federal government or is it a global supply chain issue caused by the pandemic? The federal government is prepared to ride that out or are they? Here's how the debate is playing out in Parliament. Check this out. The government has already refused to account for $600 billion of their spending 
and now they're planning to spend more without any accountability. Why is this government covering up their out-of-control spending? I'm really pleased to answer an economic question from the Leader of the Official Opposition. It gives me the chance to congratulate him for agreeing last week with Stephen Pillows and the majority of serious economists that, and I quote, inflation is a global phenomenon. So against that political backdrop, the federal government will be releasing its long-awaited fiscal update on December the 14th. With inflation still at an 18-year high at 4.7%, the unemployment, though, in November fell to 6%. That brings it close to pre-pandemic levels. Why? Well, Stats Canada says 154,000 new jobs were added in November. Of course, all this could lead to more labor shortages, and that could lead to more inflation. The questions just keep coming. Does this all mean that the federal government should reconsider its big spending plan? And what are the politics of all that? To answer this, the scrum is here. Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief. Tonda McCharles, parliamentary reporter with the Toronto Star, joins us. And our special guest this round is the former finance minister, the former deputy prime minister. He now serves on the board of directors of CIBC and TELUS, among other things, John Manley. So good morning to everybody. Uh, okay, Mr. Manley, you once fought uh, big deficits and debts. Uh, inflation, clearly the big issue. And the question is, should Christian Freeland, should the finance minister start clawing back stimulus now? Is it contributing to the inflation problem or not? I think there's got to be an element of that, as well as the supply issues that, that you mentioned, because most of the stimulus has gone into, into what you might call the demand sector. The, 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 it's not gone into investments. There are proposed investments. That spending hasn't occurred yet. So most of the money that's flowed out the door has been fueling consumption. And uh, you've got on the other side of that, these supply chain blockages that means supplies are slow so you've got a increase in capacity to, to purchase household savings are up bank deposits are up and on the other side you've got increasingly shortages in, in especially in the in the consumer and some other sectors of things to buy so supply and demand prices go up okay uh tonda i spoke to kevin page the former um, parliamentary budget officer and I asked him about you know this past week I don't want to bore people but the supplementary estimates came out on budget and there was 497 billion dollars and I said what do you make of that I'm quoting 2020-21 spending numbers are quote staggering and unprecedented okay uh, there is no relevant historical benchmarks for spending but he, he, he agrees that some of it was necessary but but how is this playing out politically now that uh, we've got to sort of figure out what's the next step and the inflation debate has taken over. Mm -hmm. The problem with all of these things, when they play out politically, they play out simplistically and they're anything but. I mean, Kevin Page hit the nail on the head. The whole level of spending was unprecedented to meet an unprecedented crisis. And I think Mr. Manley laid out sort of all the factors that are playing into inflation. Well, none of that makes for a great soundbite in the House of Commons uh, for the Liberal government to defend itself against the challenge by the Conservatives that either they're contributing to inflation, which is a questionable argument, but that they're not able to really do anything about it and or not willing to do anything about it. Yeah, and, and Joyce, they got the fall fiscal update. Is, given the, the prominence now of the inflation debate everywhere, is this incumbent on Christian Freeland to have a better answer than what we've heard, which is childcare and housing? 
Absolutely. Uh, and so far, we haven't heard that better answer. And, you know, the, 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 the fiscal update, uh, interestingly, is coming out on the 14th, and the House rises for six weeks, three days later. So, you know, clearly somebody doesn't want to have this debate or doesn't want to answer clear questions. Um, but, but to what John Manley was saying, there are several reasons uh, for, uh, for the situation now. Is the spending, this incredible historic spending, one of them? Absolutely. What percentage of the inflation is it, though? Is it really, um, it, how, how culpable is, is this spending? But it is clear that the minister was spending money even before we knew whether we were out of this pandemic. Okay, so John Manley, you've been there. Um, fiscal updates coming. Uh, there's concerns about inflation, housing inflation, uh, cost of living inflation, and, and deficits. If you were there now, what would you put in the fall fiscal update? And what would you hope to see in it? Well, first thing, uh, there has every five years been a renewed agreement between the Department of Finance and the Bank of Canada on what the inflation targets should be. That's up for renewal. I think it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely essential that the inflation target of 2% in the range of 1 to 3 be reaffirmed. Uh, failing that, I don't know where we end up. Secondly, I'd say that there has to be some plan to see our uh, spending uh, as a ratio of our, of our economy start to come down. Uh, this cannot go on indefinitely, and, and Canadians will not prosper. We will not have the, the wealth to redistribute and to spend on all these programs if we don't attract the investment into our country that creates the wealth. And through all of this, I haven't heard a really comprehensive explanation of how we're going to build our economy for the future so that we create the prosperity that Canadians are going to need. Okay, just before I, let, I go to Tonda and Joyce, just real quick, John Manley, if you were giving advice, would you say to Christian Freeland now, rein it in or keep the supports coming? You've got to rein it in. You, you have to acknowledge the fact that, that we're, we're, uh, our employment numbers are improving, the job situation is improving, there are somewhere around a million vacant jobs in the economy right now. What we need now is to show a little discipline to give markets confidence that Canada can get back on track. Okay, Tonda, let me flip over to you. Uh, Pierre Polyever has been on the front. He's been saying, rein it in. He's been saying the spending's causing inflation. Uh, Aaron O'Toole has been repeating that. By the way, Aaron O'Toole also, we should know, got his entire uh, caucus to give unanimous support to conversion therapy. So I just wonder, after all the criticism he's faced, you got the conversion therapy issue that he's passed, and now he's sort of latched on to the cost of living inflation issue. What is this debate now doing for the opposition and maybe for Mr. O'Toole? Well, it gives the opposition a so-called pocketbook issue that many Canadians will relate to. Notwithstanding the fact that, you know, their arguments on inflation are simplistic and perhaps not, not on the money, Pardon the pun. But the, the, the fact is that for the Conservatives, when they're on economic territory, that is a political strong point from them, for them. They have long had credibility on the economics file. They, that's a hangover from even the Harper years now for O'Toole. Uh, they have a record that they can keep hearkening back to. So I think politically it's a strong point for him. I hate to say this, but I've got to rein it in here. Uh, John Manley, uh, a real pleasure. I, I, I never like to rein it in with you. 
Well, as far as stocking stuffers are concerned, the Omicron variant is not the gift you're looking for, but early concerns about it have led to travel restrictions, countries closing borders, even though there's still no hard evidence about how dangerous it is or how the efficacy of vaccines against it will be. Is the holiday travel season in jeopardy? Are the politics of action leaping ahead of the prudence of public health and science? Well, the Scrum is back to answer all that. Joining me now, again, of course, CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier joins us. So does uh, Toronto Star Parliamentary Reporter uh, Tana McCharles. And our special guest this round is infectious disease specialist, Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Okay, great to have you back, Doc. Welcome to you. Um, we know that the uh, vaccine advisory um, agency updated its booster shot recommendations. Provinces were already moving ahead with their own schedules. What's your sense on Omicron? Is this genuinely about concerns about the new variant? Or is it concerned that the vaccines we already have are already waning in terms of how effective they are? Yeah, I mean, they did mention Omicron only once in this entire document, but they acknowledged that there's some uncertainty with this variant. And we're definitely going to hear more from them on the effectiveness of vaccination as we learn more about this as data unfolds. Uh, this is really mostly about Delta. And, you know, it's pretty clear that these vaccines are very likely to be three-dose vaccine series for most people. And what you're starting to see is either provinces march down different age categories to get to uh, eligibility for all adults or just saying, listen, uh, if you're six months out, you're eligible for a vaccine. I think both strategies are fine as long as they're implemented in a very reasonable manner. But like, it's fair to say that we'll, we'll all likely get a third dose of this vaccine at some point. Yeah, booster shots and, and the strong recommendation, Joyce, for people over 50 getting booster shots, that doesn't apply to anyone on this panel. Let's just be clear on that. Um, are the politics of the pandemic getting in the way of prudence, Joyce? Like, how is this changing the political debate about how governments handle the pandemic? Well, I think, you know, it's such a moving target that it's difficult for politicians, all of them, of all stripes, to sort of pin it down. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, we were saying you should remove the PCR test for people going into the States, and all of a sudden, the variant arrives. And, you know, there is the science, and then there's the perception of politics. And, and it's difficult, I, I think it's difficult for them to even follow, uh, for politicians to even follow the science. I mean, does it make sense that you need a PCR test three days before you return to Canada? Um, you know, could you not catch it 48 hours before or 24 hours before? It was just that they, you have to draw a line in the sand and sometimes these lines in the sand probably don't make scientific sense, but politically you can't be seen not to do anything. Let me bring in Tonda. You know, travel, I, I travel. Just, uh, yeah, go I, ahead. Try to weigh in on the politics well, versus the say, science. I think we saw. I, th I think we saw the politics at play um, from last Friday through this Friday all week when the government was dealing with the demands for country-based travel bans and you know having been stung last spring or I guess 2021 or 2020 when they you know declined to do quick action on. Uh, banning travel or banning incoming travel from different countries. Uh, they they move to act quickly, but the problem is when you do specific country travel bans, um, you're looking in the rearview mirror of where the virus has been, right. not necessarily where it is. And um, we've seen that uh, this week. We've seen that, you know, as the news comes out of Africa, that virus is, the variant rather, is is in many, many places in Africa. We've already now seen it uh, in show up in the U.S. and in Canada. So I think that 
the, the politics of this are also going to be playing out in terms of, you know, the calls for vaccine equity around the world. Should we be gi even giving healthy Canadians third do bo booster doses before the rest of the world is vaccinated, before first doses are in poorer countries? Um, something that Canada has committed to, but time and time again has mm -hmm. shown that, you know, their priority is actually going to be Canadian citizens. Again, that's a political imperative. Yeah, so luckily we have a doctor on the panel to separate the politics from the medicine. But, yeah. but like, when are we going to find out these issues, Doc? Uh, when will we find out if vaccines are still effective? Uh, because I'll tell you, for all the political talk, 95% of the people watching this program now are saying, should I be traveling over the holiday season? Are my travel plans in jeopardy? Or, because is this thing too dangerous? Well, what do you tell people like that? Yeah, so a couple quick points here. One is that it's it would be extremely unusual for a, a variant to emerge that just renders our vaccines totally useless. It's very likely that our vaccines will have you know some protective effect against this variant. The question is to what extent and, and quantifying that and also not only looking at two doses of the vaccine but also three doses of the vaccine. So very likely to be effective. It's just not quite clear to what extent the variant chips away at immunity. Uh, so those are those are questions that will be addressed and answered probably in the coming week and weeks. And we're not going to have one study that answers it like that. There's going to be a growing body of evidence that will slowly answer those questions. The second point is related to measures. And, you know, I think sometimes we confuse travel restrictions with border restrictions. And and, you know, I, I totally agree with the other panelists focus travel measures and focus focus travel restrictions to indiv individual countries or regions are largely ineffective. We've learned this time and time again through COVID, and we've also known this long before COVID. Anyone remember H1N1? I mean, the, if you really want to slow this down, and I'm not using the word stop it because there's no, there's no stopping this freight train, but if you really want to slow it down, it's border measures. But boy, uh, Joyce, that raises questions. What's going to happen at the border? Do we have the capacity to do all the testing? Do we have the capacity for quarantine? I mean, the logistical issues essentially become a de facto travel ban when you're facing a thicket of tests and, and, and lineups at the border. Absolutely. And, you know, interestingly, the first effect of all these rules, and they're kind of confusing, uh, even for us, and, and we're right in there uh, looking at details, uh, all the announcements of last week, we were all discussing them. Does that mean three days before, 24 hours, 48 hours before the test? Very confusing. So the first effect of this is going to be, and we saw that in airports when we were talking to people who are about to take a plane or returning from a travel is, yeah, maybe, you know what, maybe I won't travel in January. I was thinking of doing it, but I won't. So you'll get the bold and the beautiful who will say, yeah, Yes, I'm going to travel because I feel like it. And, but a lot of people are going to hesitate, which is probably a good thing. I, I think to update your saying there, Joyce, I think it's now in 2021, the bold and the boosted, not the bold and the beautiful. <laughs> Anyone's got a booster shot. Uh, Tanya, just one last thing, and, and Dr. Bogosh and Joyce mentioned it, the U.S. exception. I know the U.S. has changed their border rules 24 hours before you travel mm -hmm. to the U.S. or leave, you've got to have a test. I understand that. But there's so many issues with our border in the U.S. We're still worried about U.S. protectionism and the auto industry. Now it doesn't seem like... That border issue, is that being, Canada gave them an exception, they didn't give Canada an exception. What do you make of how that border issue is playing out in light of the pandemic? Look, I think the, the most telling response we've heard from all the politicians when you ask them, why can't we synchronize these border measures, is that everybody's looking after their own interests. They're making their own mm -hmm. sovereign decisions on it. And I think the political imperatives are slightly different in, dif in each country, right? I mean, for a long time, uh, you know, 
there was a growing chorus in the U.S. for Canada to let in the Americans. And, when, you know, and it was Canadians that were worried about the spread of the virus there. And, oh, we were a little bit smug about it, right? We took our time. And then when we did, you know, they didn't respond in kind. So um, I, I think to expect that we're all going to be getting along and doing everything according to, you know, one song sheet, I, I don't think it's reasonable or practical. All right, I, I got to leave it there. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, Joyce Napier, Tanya McCharles, the bold and the boosted. Uh, okay, that's question period for this week. Uh, for those celebrating Hanukkah, happy Hanukkah. I know Dr. Bogosh wishing you that uh, happy Hanukkah to you and your family. Stay safe uh, if you're out there shopping. Hug your loved ones if you can. Never take that for granted. I'll see you on CTV's Power Play tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel. And we will be back here in seven short days. Take care.